right, you guys? Podcast time. We got the equipment and the perfect business plan. Give our show away for free and tell no one how to find it. Ready? This is the Louisiana Saturday Night Podcast, and this is Robert and April. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show, Louisiana Saturday Night Podcast. I'm your host, Robert. I'm April. And we have a pretty good show uh, for today. I'm so excited. We're going to be joined by uh, Mr. Neil Watson who is a member of the band called The Screens. Welcome, Mr. Watson. Hey, Robert. Hey, April. How Welcome. are you doing? Hello. Awesome. How are Great you, sir? Great to have you. Do you know what? I'm, uh, even though the band are from, from England, I'm currently in Spain at the moment, so I'm enjoying the, the Mediterranean sunshine. And, uh, yeah, no, we're, we're really good. We're in lockdown. We've been in lockdown the best part of nine weeks now, um, but uh, we're doing great, thanks. How about you guys? Um Pretty much uh, for me, it's business as usual because yeah. of my job. So I, I'm still going to work. Nothing's really changed for me. <laughs> um, it's day to day for me. It's you, oh, the kids are driving me crazy because they're home, but that's okay because it's leading into summer anyway. But it, but now I'm going into work one day a week, so I don't completely lose my sanity. <laughs> How old are you? Uh, well, let's see. Um, we have five. Um, yeah. We've both been married before, so April's um, oldest is 27, Seven. Yes. then the, our middle one, she's 24. Four. Yeah, she's in grad school at Iowa State. Uh, and uh, She's so, the smart one. Right, right. She's the uh, <laughs> And then we have uh, Brianna, she's fi- 14. 14. Yeah. And um, uh, our other daughter, Abigail, she's 14, uh, she's 13, thir- yeah. going on 14, and then my son, um, is 17, about to be 18. But three have flown the coop, so we just have the 13 and 14-year-olds, so we have teenagers. Yes, we just have two in the house still. Yeah. So you're kind of like the Louisiana Brady Bunch. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Pretty much, except we don't have a maid. Here's a story. <laughs> right, I, right, wish, right. I, I wish we did, but we don't. Hey, I've got to tell you, before we go any further, I've got to tell you this because it's uh, it's it, it's been on my mind all day today. So when I was – I started playing guitar when I was five years old. My dad was a manager of, of bands. Wow. And for my fifth birthday, he came home with this beaten-up old electric guitar and a little practice amplifier that one of the guitarists in a band he managed had given him. And he said, look, you know – Give this to, to your son, Neil. Uh, he's at the perfect age to start playing guitar. And you know, my dad grew up um, in, interested in sort of rock and roll and what have you. So what he did was on the morning of, of my birthday, he gave me this beaten up old guitar. He gave me the amplifier and he gave me a pile of vinyl. And in that vinyl, there was uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. There was oh, Little Richard. Oh, yeah. The rest yeah, we yeah. just want to talk about uh, Little Richard. Passed away. My wife was telling me that. I didn't even know that. Yeah. The final one, final artist that he gave me was Chuck Berry. And he gave oh. me these records. And he said, if you can learn to play with these guys, you're going to be fine as a guitarist. That's where the only rudiments you need to do is to play along with these guys. And this is a bit I wanted to tell you. The very, very, very first song I ever learned that I played along with and sang as well, the opening line was, Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans. <laughs> so to be doing a podcast on the radio station for Louisiana is completing the circle for me. 
That's awesome. My heart's going to burst wide open. That, oh, I love that. I well, you know that. Jerry Lee is from Louisiana. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Faraday, um, Louisiana. So, I, and I just, I picked up the guitar earlier on today and just kind of riffed through Johnny Be Good a little bit, just as a bit of kind of, you know, wow. I'm wow. talking to these guys this afternoon <laughs> or, or whatever time this goes out. And, um, and I've, I, I, yeah, that's the first song I ever wrote that referenced where you're from. So, um, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm flattered to be. Well, thank you. We're 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 honored. flattered to have you uh, on our show. Just honored. That's you know? amazing. I love that. Have you ever been to uh, New Orleans by chance? No. Do you know what? It's so on my list of things to do. What we're planning on doing. Um, it, my wife um said she wants to do a road trip for years time. Quite a big one, but not a massive one. And so she's a massive Prince fan. She's really into Prince. So the plan was that we'd fly into maybe Boston uh, or, or maybe even direct into Minnesota, pick up an RV, and then just kind of tour across, but drive all the way down, all the way down to um, Louisiana, New Orleans, and then <laughs> then somehow get to LA and dump the RV there and fly back. But just without a time scale, just travel through mm-hmm. America and just, just soak it up. But New Orleans is... It, 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 you can't really call yourself a musician if, if no. you know you don't appreciate the contribution New Orleans has had to music throughout the generations. Yeah, I was, right. just, I was just going to say that um, being a music, musician, you've got to go to New Orleans. I mean, <laughs> right. you just have to. Right. The birthplace of, of you know, jazz. I think even if you're not a musician, I've seen so many programs on TV, like travel programs, and you see people that have got no real relationship directly with music just being just seduced by the whole place and the whole, the history behind it, you know, everything that it means to kind of the cultural part of music as well as the actual, you know, notation of music. So no, for me, that that's, it's just, I think we get one lap around the track when we come on this earth and to not visit New Orleans and call yourself a musician would be a travesty. (laughs) So it's so on my list of things to do. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, New Orleans is one of those cities that um, was very rare, even back early in America's history because it was sort of a place where you could just, it didn't matter what race you were, oh, yeah. you could just go to New Orleans and, and just Anything goes, do what you wanted to. Just like it is now. But no, we're not in New Orleans though. We're 90 miles away, but we go yeah. like quarterly because we just, as tourists, we just kind of do the tourist thing. It just, it's so much fun. Well, she goes there and she gets drunk and I have to take care of her. <laughs> Right. That's good though. That, that's kind of one of you has to do that. So right. would you stay over when you go? Oh yeah, we get we usually get a hotel, um, stay the weekend, make a weekend thing out of it. Uh, it's really fun. I suggest you go. And so if you had to recommend one club to go to, one music venue, which one would that be? <sighs> For music, oh god, there's so many. Okay, so everyone's going to tell you go to um, Bourbon Street, but Bourbon Street is so full of tourists, of tourists and right. just. Yeah, stuff you really don't want to see. No, um, but that but you should at least. I mean, go spend walk down time, it, yeah. but it's not. I would go to Frenchman Street. Yes, um, that's okay. where a lot of the good um, music is. A lot of the good clubs, look good bars to drink at, but it's mostly all locals. Right, and they change names from time to time, but you just you can kind of see, duck, kinda... duck in one, come out the other. Yeah, but that's fairly. But you want to you want to see the real place of wherever you go, right? That you know, right. do you not think you know? There's there's tourist places where everywhere it, you know every country. Like so, we're near Marbella, 
uh, which is where uh, all of the famous kind of people park their, their yachts and all that kind of thing, a bit like a Monte Carlo. Mm. But that really has nothing to do with Spain at all. That's just kind of rich Russians and, uh, you know, <laughs> Cockneys from London with their flash boats kind of, and they're, they're you know, 50-year-old guys and 20-year-old girlfriends drinking champagne. <laughs> but that's not Spain. That could be anywhere. That's anywhere where people have got too much money and no class. Sounds, so, right. it sounds great, though. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, to, to kind of go off the tourist trail has to be the way to, to really experience a place. So I'm going to ta- take that tip from me. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so make sure uh, you, when you go there, tell them uh, Robert sent you. <laughs> okay. I'll get there. Get, I'm a friend of Robert and April's. Do you know them? You'll be surprised. <laughs> Gas station. That's the first thing I'm going to say. I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> can go either way. It's 50 50. <laughs> can work out good for you, can work out bad for you. I'll take my chances. There you go. There you go. So, I, I have to tell you, when I when I first got your message, um, I was like, okay, this is interesting. First of all, how does a guy from the UK find us right. and our show? How did that happen? Well, here's the thing, you know. Um, so, the screens, uh, Colin and myself, um, we formed the band when we were at school and the sole intention of just kind of impressing girls. But what we didn't read the small print, the girls had got into soccer players at the time, but we'd blown all our money on music equipment and we didn't have enough money for guitars and uh, for football boots and all that sort of stuff. So it didn't work out. But the whole, the whole point of being in a band for us was uh, initially just to get girls didn't work. So then we thought, geez, we've got this equipment. We might as well start writing music. So, so we did that. Um, and because of the way the the record industry is now, there's little point in a band that's starting out trying to get a record deal with anyone, especially in the UK, because you can do so much of it yourself without having to behold to a marketing department. And so, you know, with our first album, um, it was very 60s inspired, bands like the Zombies, the Small Faces. Um, and so... We thought if we'd signed to a major record company, we'd be restricted by how we recorded, what kind of videos we'd make, what kind of lyrical content we'd have. And so we thought, you know what, we've got a studio. We can we can make our own music. We can put it out um, on Spotify, on iTunes. So which bit of that is a record company going to bring to the table that will make that any more palatable? Plus, we, we retain full artistic control. So that's what we did with the first album. And it, it, what we did was we made the album with just musical style that we liked. We didn't really have a plan behind it. And there's a huge difference between the first album and the second album. I'll come on to that. But so what we did was we made the album and it was 10 songs. We thought, well, these are okay. These hang together nicely. Now let's make some videos. And the first single was a song called Avalanche. And it basically, ironically, I'm about to go back three minutes here. It tells the story of a London gangster, similar to the film The Long Good Friday, who has a very young girlfriend. And basically, he's a big underworld figure. And his girlfriend is a trophy girlfriend. She's very pretty, but she's not there for the relationship purposes. She's there just to make him look better, to show that uh, you know, a guy nearly 60-year-old can have a bombshell of a girlfriend. Well, she falls in love with one of the, the guys, the young guys that works with him and has an affair. 
And consequently, the godfather, the older guy, finds out and he has them both killed. So it's, that's oh. all set to the really poppy back of, of like a small faces melody. So the lyrical content is, is very dark. So when we came to make the video, we made the video along those lines. We, we shot it ourselves. We edited it ourselves. We brought in actors. Colin and myself don't appear in our videos. We just, it's, we just don't really like that sort of thing. So... We made this video um, and we know a record company would never have allowed us to make it because it wouldn't be allowed on mainstream TV. There's some dark scenes mm-hmm. when the, the, the girlfriend and the, the, you know, the, the guy that she's having an affair with get killed. So it's quite dark. Uh, and so we, we, we embraced that form of freedom. We thought this is great being able to do what you want without a, a, a label telling you, you have to do it like this. This won't get played on Radio One, so change this, change that. Don't edit this bit out. Blah blah blah. So we thought, no, no, no. So we've now got complete um, creative freedom. So the question you asked was, how did we reach out to you? Well, when you do that, when you become a band that's self-sufficient, it means that you have to look at ways to get your music around the world in the best way possible. So it literally becomes an exercise of. Well, let's see who's out there. Let's see where the future of, of unsigned music lies. We're not going to get on MTV. We know that. We're not going to be on Radio One. So we have to, you know, explore. So we 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 spend a lot of time um, on social media, um, on Instagram, on Facebook, just joining groups of like-minded people, people that are interested in mm. hearing new bands. And we introduce ourselves. We go, hey, look, we're, we're, we're the Screens. We're from London. We've got a story. And if you're interested, we'd be more than happy to come and talk to you. Uh, and we, we do that. So we, we pitch out to people all over the world. And thankfully, people like yourself come back and say, yeah, this will be great. We're really interested to, to hear from you. We, we, I did um, a Hong Kong uh, uh, radio station on Thursday I did Adelaide uh, yesterday. Uh, we do some in England, but but it's amazing how, especially perhaps in this lockdown time, so many people uh, are looking to connect with other people around the world and to find out more about a story. We can all listen to Ed Sheeran and Adele every day of the week, uh, <laughs> but maybe there's a bit more going on in the world apart from just Ed, Ed Sheeran and Adele. Look, you better watch out. There's some big Ed Sheeran and Adele fans out there. They don't want to make them mad. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I do lo- well. Now I have to be careful. I love Adele. I think Adele is great. I'm, a, yes. I'm, I'm just a bit. I'm a bit Ed Sheeran out, if I'm perfectly honest. I like him. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think some of some of his rhymes just kind of defy belief. I'm not sure I could ever write a song called Galway Girl. It, it just I'm not sure it works for me that I fell in love with a girl from Galway. Why would well, what's where's she from got anything to do with why you love her? That seems a bit odd. And why would you sing about the town that she comes from? If she came from a really terrible neighbourhood, would you still say you fell in love with her from there? She may have nicked your wallet and your watch by that point. So why would you do just it, you know, it doesn't pan for me, I'm That's afraid. True. Not a mad fan. So where's Galway? What's so great about Galway? Nothing. <laughs> only that he only that wrote a song about it, and he sings about it all the time. My Galway girl, and she's not even from Galway. I bet she's not. I bet I bet she's from Stoke or Glasgow or something like that. Something horrible, but not that they're horrible. But I don't think he did. I'm sure he didn't. It just rhymed with hallway. He right. went. I was walking down my hallway. I right. met a girl from hallway. 
that works i'll stick it in a song and loads of people will download it that's so so true i never thought about that his problem with Ed Sheeran, I have to tell you, and it's not his fault. It absolutely is not his fault. So let me, let me go on the record with that. Is that for every? This is why our new album is not on Spotify. The first album was on Spotify, and for every play we get on Spotify, he gets our money. So we're encouraging him to write another song about another girl that in his, that rhymes with kitchen diner. Uh, that he's going to write a song about and make money from, and we won't get our money. So I, I don't want to put any more songs on, on Spotify and know that I'm making Ed Sheeran fatter. So wait a minute. Why does Ed Sheeran get money when your song is played? Because it's, I, I don't fully understand the algorithm about it, um, but the larger the artist, the bigger the share of the income generated by the royalties globally get paid to the biggest artist so so here's an i'm not sure you would know this band but they were huge in england and in europe and they were called frankie goes to hollywood and they had okay so my friend was the guitarist in the band and he wrote uh, a song called the power of love which is it's always at number one in england at christmas it's a big christmas song even though it's got nothing to do with christmas (laughs) And he, he told me a while ago, he said, I had 30,000 streams on Spotify, 30,000 streams on Spotify. And I, I didn't earn enough money to buy a new set of guitar strings and a cup of tea from the wow. royalties I got. Wow. That's... Now, if that had been in radio terms, if you had 30,000 radio plays on, on Radio 1 in England, that would be nearly £100,000. <laughs> That's but, crazy. Yeah. It's insane, right? It's yeah. just insane. So, yeah, so so as a band, I don't believe Spotify does anything for new bands unless those bands are so desperate for thousands of people to like them, but they get no money for it. I mean, it's it's not a beauty pageant being in a band. You know, it's kind yeah. of, it's a bit more kind of, a bit, bit deeper than that. And I think being popular on Spotify really doesn't doesn't float my boat. It's not something I'd be excited about. I think, yeah, it's not for me. That's good to well, know. Like you said, you know, in the past, um, before technology is what it is now, you basically you needed a a record label. You had to have one to get your your music out there to produce albums. Um, now you could do all that in your living room, so it cuts out awesome. cuts out the record yeah. label, and you can make your music at home and. Get it straight it to there. the public right away. Cut out the middleman. Yeah. That's what's so great about Just, technology now. Yeah. And, and, and I think um, people people consume music in a different way, which, see, this doesn't completely conform to where we where the screens are as a band. This is the slight contradiction for us in that because you can do music very easily from a home studio uh, and a couple of kind of keyboard and, and sequence of things that you can get from a catalog shop um, without pretty too much skill. You can kind of make something that doesn't sound totally dissimilar to something you might be dancing to in a club without too much training. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it facilitates more people that downside because there's too much there's too much rubbish in the marketplace so record companies 
the good thing about them before technology came along was that they were the filter between great people and terrible people, and of which there's an abundance of terrible people that think they're good people. So the, the record company was the buffer then, and, and he went, no, 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 we're not having you. You're sorry, you're terrible. No, please, sell your equipment and buy your <laughs> wife a nice dinner because you're wasting <laughs> your money with star. Do that. But anyone can release music, and that's the slight flaw. So, so people that are really into music have to work quite hard to wade through all the rubbish. So that's the only downside. But as you quite rightly said, Robert, the upside is that it allows people that can't get a meeting with a record company to just put something together and get it out there. And hopefully, if they do, like we were discussing earlier on, how we connected with you, if they work hard enough on social media and connect with radio stations and bloggers um, and podcasters, then hopefully... You know, word spreads. People go, actually, you know, there's this kind of um, girl singer we, we heard who's you know, got a thousand people following her on Facebook. She's written this amazing song. It's recorded really poorly, but you, she's got an incredible voice. So that's the real upside of, of people bypassing um, record companies. So there's upsides and there's downsides, but the upsides far out yeah. the downsides. Yeah, you look at uh, YouTube and a lot of um, artists have become – famous just by putting their music on youtube it's it's yeah. crazy right that's how justin bieber right got yep. discovered youtube but also in the sports industry too they use that now they you know for scouting purposes to get out there it's just a platform to get people out there it's wonderful yeah i mean the, the digital age is has changed music the way you get music in general i mean i remember as a kid you used to have have to buy a whole album yeah. If you only liked one song, right. you had to buy that whole album. Now yeah. you can just buy the song. Right. And yeah. I don't even have to leave the house. We live in that society, don't we? Just Amazon's going to take over the world, isn't it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> there's a, there's a, <laughs> Disney, uh, Disney, Amazon, one of the two. There's, there's a series I watched. I, th I think it was Black Mirror. I'm not sure, but they had a, a, a spoof on like the end of the world and an Amazon type um, company was the only thing left. And it kept delivering stuff to people that they didn't need. And they were trying to tell them like you got to shut down because these plants you're, you're killing the atmosphere. Uh, that's right. But it was that's just this right. big AI that was kept sitting on like tennis shoes. They're like, we don't even need this. We need food. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. But no, Amazon do food now, don't they? Right. Amazon do food. Yes. Some places, yeah, they, they will deliver food. Yes. That's crazy. It is. It's crazy. So the name, the, the yeah. screens, where where did that come from? How did y'all come up with that? Does that have any special meaning? or? It sort of did, yeah, because what we thought was when we – well, first of all, I need to tell you this. This is really important. Colin and myself are both – Great looking guys, really good looking guys. <laughs> we stop traffic. That's how good looking we are. But that's not important. That's not important. I just want to tell us. I just want to put it out there. But so what we thought was, no, I'm joking. <laughs> we're incredibly. Good. No, we so so the screens is this right? We thought we thought we're a musical band. That's what we're there. We, we don't, you know, you know. Um, so we live in a terrible world dominated by TV talent shows, right? And all oh of a sudden, God, yes. somebody who looks great 
gets you because Simon Cowell says, wow, you look great, even though they can't sing. Don't worry about that. That's the problem. This is the music industry. You don't need to sing. We can, we can sort that out. We've got auto-tune. We've got Drake. We can sort all this stuff out. So what happens is, right, so they get a record deal. The, the, they're airbrushed to death in photographs. And unfortunately, the way marketing works, you know, kids that buy records are just brainwashed kind of to follow people that they've not even heard really from like a live perspective. So they're sucked in before they've had a chance to actually scratch the surface and go, actually, do you know what? That guy looks good, but he's terrible. So they're already sucked in. They've bought posters, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> anyway, so the screens, the name, we thought, you know what? We don't really want to be a band that gets recognized for anything apart from our music. So we're going to put a screen between us and our audience. The music is what they're going to buy into. And if they like that, great. We deserve to be doing what we're doing because we're a band and we're, we're feasible as an entity. We're supposed to be musicians. We're not supposed to be catwalk models. So for us, the name The Screens signifies there's the barrier between us and you being confused about what we're about. We're about music, we're about making stuff and rising or falling by what we do, which is play music, not catwalk. So that's where the name came from, the screens. Interesting. That's very interesting because I was wondering, it, it seems like there's a formula and maybe it's just something so obvious and it, that everybody knows this, but it seems like to, in today's world, whatever's pop is like there's a formula to that and there's no thought really behind it there's no feeling and like it's like what happened to the music where's the feeling and where's the passion and that's what you guys bring and i absolutely it's so refreshing thank you so much hey i'm going to tell you a story now so before um before the screens uh i spent a few years um writing film and television music and before that i was an a and r guy for a record company i won't say who the record company was but they're quite a well-known record company and Actually, it makes no difference. I could, it was Zomba Records. And anyway, so I'm working on a project with a well-known Welsh sir singer. And we're, we're doing his album. And um, I'm in charge of budgeting. I'm the A&R guy behind the album. And so the my boss comes to me and says, OK, fine. Listen, we're doing Tom's album. Can you tell me how much the two tracks that we're recording are going to cost. So I said, I don't fully understand what you mean. He went, well, we need to know, we need to tell Tom's management how much money each song that you record is going to cost. And I said, well, you, you, I, ca I can't tell you that because I don't know how many backing singers we're going to need. I don't know how many hours we're going to be in the studio. I don't know how many times Tom's going to get it wrong before he gets it right. I don't know how long it's going to take to mix this record. So there isn't a price to how much we spend to make a hit record a hit record is is made uh and when we finish recording i can tell you to the nearest cent how much it's cost but up until that point i have no idea so we had huge rounds about this and i was told at the time you need to understand that there's a formula that we have to work to which is we spend a certain amount and that's the amount of there's a lid to that. And then once we've spent that amount making the record, we spend X amount on videos, we spend X amount on promotion, and that's how we make a hit record. And the music industry um, has mutated into the marketing industry. So it's no longer run by 
creative people, the, the Berry Gordies of this world, that you know, the or even you know the Phil Spectors that would just make incredible records with no real budget to it whatsoever. They'd go into a studio and they'd spend time and they'd get it how they wanted it, and then it was finished. Those days are gone. It's now so marketing led, where a marketing department already has the plan laid out before the songs are made. I mean, I had another session with an artist where we booked the studio, we booked a really well-known famous producer who'd had number one records over the world. The band were ready, uh, the singer was ready. You know, the only thing we didn't have? A song. We did not have a song when we went into the studio. And so... Can you can you imagine making a record? And you go, what's the one thing that we need? Well, we need a hit song. Well, we've got everything else. We just don't have a hit song. It's insane. That's it's wild. Insane. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. Well, it's 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 more about what they look like, and like you said, well, what, yeah. what what you sound like doesn't matter because we can make anyone. Sound <laughs> oh yeah, good. because the like it is a formula. That's what I was wondering. All, all pop music pretty much sounds the same. Likes vision and and the gosh, that's crazy. It's wild. It's mad. So as I said, I said to the, at the beginning of this kind of question, that's why Colin and myself are hiding our absolute ace up our sleeve, which is our looks, because we know we look amazing. <laughs> well, I heard you mention that you used to um, write music um, for, for TV shows. But uh, yes, interest, an interesting show, quote yeah. that you said was you describe it as being a bit like a musical prostitute. Totally right. Totally right. Robert, I was doing this thing. I don't know. I don't know if you would know this. There's a there's a tennis tournament in England which is called Wimbledon, and it's a grass, yeah. it's a grass tournament. Okay, and it's it's a big tournament. Uh, I think people like McEnroe have won it. Uh, loads of Americans have won it. Billie Jean King. I think she she owns shares in the place. She's won it so many times. But anyway, so there's a there's a TV station and. They said to me, right, we need you to write the theme for our Wimbledon program. So I said, okay, fine, I can do that. That's fine. So the problem we're working with the film industry and the television industry is it's it's like mixing oil and water. Music people are different to visual people. We speak a different language. We, we're just different. It's kind of South Korea, North Korea. It's insane. So... <laughs> I've got this director, a producer of the the opening sequence of Wimbledon, and he's sitting in the studio with me. And I've written, I've gone, you know, for me, I, I think Wimbledon inspires classical music. It's a very quintessential British thing. So let's go, you know, Elgar. Um, let's go, kind of pomp and circumstance, big string arrangements, blah blah blah. And he said, Look, I'll let Neil. I've, I've I've employed you to do this, so please get on with it and create this piece of work. So, you know, when you work with orchestras, that's tough work because it's outside my comfort zone completely. I'm not an orchestrator, so you're writing for instruments that you don't fully understand. So, to cut a long story short, I gave this my my heart and soul. I really ploughed myself into to this project, and I give the guy a call, and he listened to it and he didn't say anything, and I'm really proud, but I'm nervous. And he, he said to, to, to the, the, the engineer, right, re rewind it, rewind it, let's listen to it again. So he rewinds it, he plays it again. And he said, Neil. And I thought, oh, here we go. Here, this, That's the patronising Neil. Something's not right here. And he said, I think what is missing, it's missing a Sahara sunset. What? <laughs> right? <laughs> I said, I've got, I've got, 
trombones, I've got trumpets, I've got strings, I've got all strings, I've got everything you can... What exactly is is Sahara Sunset? When, it's not so much a Sahara Sunset, it's more like Trampy... Uh, 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 God, what was it? It was elephants, that's it. Elephants charging towards the camera. That's what we need. So I said, okay, well, look, we're close to the end of our budget. I think we've got about, I don't know, maybe like £200 left in the budget. I can phone London Zoo if you want, but I'm pretty sure we're not going to get you one elephant down for that, and let alone whether or not how many times he's going to stampede. It was just that's That's the thing. And I, and I remember I've had years of that, and I remember getting towards the end of it and thinking, this isn't music. This is This is doing something for somebody that doesn't really appreciate perhaps what it takes to create something. And then I thought to myself, listen, you need to get over yourself because you know what? You're paid very well to do this job. Your music isn't that important. It's behind these great pictures. People aren't tuning into Wimbledon to listen to your string arrangements. They're there to watch the tennis. But once I'd got over that bit and got over myself, I did realize, right, I only play a very small part in this puzzle. However, I'm done with this. I'm just done with this because I've been playing guitar since I'm five years old. I've loved music from you know that age. Everything about music I love. Now I really resent music. I hate every single day that I'm asked to do something I don't want to do, but I'm doing it because there's people paying me to do it. And that's why, once again, that's kind of why the screens became the screens because Colin was also a session singer at the time and we both got fed up of just doing stuff that was like musical prostitution, hence the phrase. You know, you're you're getting paid for something right. that most people love, but in actual fact, you don't really like it that much. And when you fall out of love with your passion, that's a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. So it yeah, it sounds like to me that it, it, it was killing your soul, basically. Yeah. Robert, you can't imagine how much it was because – you know, um, I think anything you do in life, I think everybody, you know, whether it's sportsmen, they start off in life and it's their passion. But somewhere along the way, money gets involved when they become professional in that particular passion of theirs. And what they started off loving about it, they tend to resent it. And so I think if we carried on down that road of, you know, Colin doing session work, myself doing TV and film work, we would probably have given up forever doing music and that would for me personally you know i'd end up playing golf so that's even worse so <laughs> i think i think it's it's a it's a tragedy for that to happen so thank god thank god for the the, the kind of bit of intervention and divine inspiration to say Lena, let's stop doing this let's let's find our passion again go right back to to what we loved and let's let's make music without there being the financial incentive behind it let's do it Let's try and do it to the best of our ability. Let's try and get people into listening to it. And and if we're proud of it, then that's what we did it for in the first place, not for the money. And so that's that's how the screens kind of evolved. Well, I heard you say earlier you're married, correct? Yes. Were you married when you were uh, working for the TV uh, film industry? Yeah, yeah, just, literally just. Okay, so and, uh, how did your wife react when you went to her and said, look, I'm giving up this paying job that gives me a, a steady check, 
and I'm going to go do this for free. Like, was that scary for you to, to even transition into that? And what was her reaction? She ran off with my uncle. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, she didn't. <laughs> she phoned him. He just wasn't interested. No, 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 none of that's true. None of that's true. No, she just said, look, you know, I can see it's affecting you. I can see. I don't. Let me try and get this phrase this right, because I don't want this to come across wrong. Um, I, I, I was very, very lucky writing film and television music. I, um, you know, they always say, you know, 1% talent and the rest is just sheer hard work. So, uh, and, but a lot of luck in there as well. So I was very lucky. So when, when we got to that point, we were kind of okay financially. I wasn't, I was, we weren't going to lose our house as a consequence of me doing this, but maybe what we might have lost was, you know, you just said it actually, maybe I might have lost my soul if I'd carry on doing it. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think behind every, the, the, as the cliche goes, behind every great man is, is an even greater woman. And, you know, my wife yeah. said, look, you know, you're not happy doing this anymore. And, you know, you're a creative person. You live by creativity. You get up in the morning, you're half full, everything. You try and put, you know, bounce in everything, make people laugh, kind of be positive. You're losing that and you're being suffocated by what you're doing if you want to do this, I'll stand behind you 100%. And she did. And, you know, thank God she did because, um, you know, uh, I've avoided what, what might have been a horrible kind of downward spiral into just hating music. So, yeah, behind every great man, there's an even greater woman. Cheers. <laughs> yes, I totally Of course agree. she agrees. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's, I love that, though. From the notes my wife gave me, by the way. <laughs> So I won't get if I didn't read that one. <laughs> how, how how does okay? So the the music that you create now, how would you describe yeah. that versus industry music that you were making for film and television? What's the the difference? Okay, so well, in terms of um, production. Not too much because so we have the studio here in Spain. So you know, I'm quite self-sufficient. So I would probably, you know, with 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 um, with the exception of maybe if I needed a lead brass instrument, I couldn't play that. I can't play brass. I can't play violins or string instruments. So I, I use you know sequences and what have you to play that sort of stuff. So, but pretty much all else, I'm fairly self-sufficient. So I can kind of work my way around stuff. The difference between the screens and doing the TV music is, and I'm going to quote one of my heroes here, which is David Bowie. And I watched a TV interview with David Bowie a, a few years before he died. And he was asked a question about how does he keep crea creativity sharp? And he said he needs to be outside his comfort zone in order to be creative. He said he knows where He's comfortable. He knows the kind of chords. He knows the melodies. So what he tries to do every time he goes into the studios is go beyond that. It doesn't need to be much beyond it. Just somewhere where he doesn't really know musically. He's he, he doesn't know the rules where he's working within. So that's exactly how the screens operates. We go into the studio, obviously with our influences, but without any restrictions uh, or, or rules to what we're going to do. We 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 create without. A, a safety net beneath us so 
it's exhilarating. It is literally like walking a high wire, um, but that you can stop at lunch and have a sandwich and then go back after lunch and have a cup of tea. But apart from that, and it's not quite as dangerous, it's it's just a nice way of working. It's it's artistic freedom. And, and film, film and TV work, as I said before, you're being guided by somebody else's good and bad ideas. Sometimes in the film stuff, you, someone comes along with a great idea uh, and, you know, that you would never have thought of yourself. And that's brilliant. But that's that's kind of counterbalanced by the terrible ideas. Well, this way around, doing the screens, we're allowed to make those decisions and also get really excited about an idea that we have, you know, where you go, oh, my God, what, the, what, what sound is that? That's a really weird sound. Let's follow this and see where it goes. And I think sometimes it doesn't always work out. Sometimes you follow that kind of line of uh, not knowing where you are and it, uh, it turns out to be a terrible piece of music. But then other times you do something and you listen to it, you know, after a few days of, of you know, working on it and you think, well, how, where's that come from? Where did that idea come from? And the reason you don't know where it came from is because you don't know how you did it. And for me personally, that's what Bowie was saying. He was saying, if you, if you don't have the rule book, you can just be so creative and it will go wrong, but it will also potentially go right. So that's, that's, the real absolute artistic freedom of being in the screens. So what's y'all's creative process? Do y'all get together and write lyrics or music, or do you come up with music and your partner comes up with lyrics? Like, how does that work? Yeah, what we do, we were very defined about it. So because I said, Colin's in, in London and I'm mm-hmm. here on the Costa del Sol. So there's, there's 2000 miles between us, which is brilliant. It's the best way to work. Uh, because, you know, you're allowed so, – so I would write the musical part of things. Colin would be more responsible for the lyrics. So I'll go into the studio downstairs and I'll, 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 I'll play with some bits and pieces. I'll dig some instruments out that maybe I've not used for a while. And normally within a day I've formulated a chord sequence, a drum pattern and a melody, you know, that, that, that this song's going to be based on. So then I'll just send an MP3 across to Colin and go, listen to this, tell me what you think. Does this give you any kind of feeling towards, you know, an idea? Certainly the first album was was done like that. And we went through about maybe 25 ideas that, that I wrote and we, we, we fine-tuned that down to 10 that he then wrote lyrics for. So that's our creative process. It's very separated. We allow each other to do their own thing. When we've got to the point where I've written a piece of music that Colin likes and he's written lyrics that I like, that gets put to one side. And so we'll try and get to 10 of those and then we'll get together, we'll book a studio and we'll spend, you know, maybe a week or two weeks in there recording vocals, changing some of the instrumentation, structuring bits differently. So working as a team at that point. But right up until that point, the lyrics would have been written by that point. Maybe there'd be one or two word changes, but nothing significant. So it's all it's all virtually done. And it's then become just like the, the fine tuning of the whole project at that point. But so in, essentially we work quite independently, quite happily doing our own bits and pieces, safe in the knowledge that we trust each other to do something that we're, we're going to like. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that that well that brings us to your second album and the personal um, meaning behind it. You want to tell us about that? Yes, yes, I really do. So, as I said, with the first album, it's ten pieces of music. They're 
we're, in, we're you know as I said we, we really like 60s records raided our parents record boxes so we're really into the zombies the small faces the stones and then you know latter things like stone roses charlatans uh so so it's it's very kind of you know real instrument music that we really like so when the opportunity came for us to to, to work on a second album we said the first album was was put out there for an audience to discover the screens, to see whether or not they like the screens or not. And, you know, nobody really knows. So we did it with a little, it's a bit of a lottery, that first album. And then we said, so for the second album, we can't do that. We can't just do the same thing again where we put out an album and hopefully people will like it and will download it or will buy it. So what we said was, look, you know, let's let's go back to all the people who bought the first album and we say to them, look, we're thinking about a second album, but we don't just want to make an album for our own benefit, not a vanity project. There's there's no point. The world is full of terrible music. So the last thing we want to do is to contribute to that pile. And if there wasn't enough people that wanted the album, then we weren't going to make it. It was as simple as that. We thought, let's, let's not burden people with an album that they have to buy. So we said to all the people that bought the first album, we sent them all an email and said, look, if you want us to make a second album, then pre-order a copy. And that shows us that you're into us and we'll, we'll deliver you the best album we possibly can. Well, thank God, you know, the, we got a really great reaction. So what it meant was that we had to make the album. So then the second part of that, we discussed this for a while. We said we don't want to write 10 songs again that have no cohesion to each other, just 10 irrelevant pop songs that are almost put together to try and, you know, titillate people that they're going to download them individually and they'll put them on playlists. We, we harped back to bands like The Who when they did albums like Quadrophenia or Tommy. And there was a story behind the album. So each song was part of a bigger story. So that's what we wanted to do. We said, right, let's let's not make an album where they're, they're 10 individual songs. We're going to make it as almost like a concept album. OK, so we'd, we'd established that. That bit was the easy bit. You know, we like the whole Led Zepp theory of no singles. We thought that was great. thing that we didn't have was a story that we wanted to tell. So that was that was the only thing that we had a bit of a problem with. Well, just as, you know, as bad fortune would have it, somebody really close to us um, was just about to go off to university um, and he was gay, but he hadn't told his family. So he decided it would be the right time just before he goes to university to tell his parents, you know, um, I've got something to tell you. I'm coming out. I'm a gay man. Well, it went terribly. His parents really didn't take it well his dad rejected him and it caused him all kinds of emotional problems he attempted suicide three times and he was finally sectioned under the mental health act he was in a terrible way he didn't go to university obviously spent some time in a hospital mental health institution and it was our story there for us right in front of us we thought my god it's 2018 2019 and homophobia still exists not against some guy that's walking down the street wearing clothes that you don't like but within a family environment where a parent chooses their own prejudice against their child and it just it seemed the most bizarre archaic thing we'd ever heard so that was the inspiration for our story we said okay well look you know in that we are 60s influenced by our sound let's base the story about somebody born post-war 
London, East London, in a very working class, rough area, who has the same situation. A 15-year-old boy who discovers he's gay and that his father throws him out. But let's turn it into a fictitious story from that point onwards. Let's let's remove the suicide and the sectioning. Let's imagine what it would be like, because don't forget at the time in England, it was a it was a criminal offence to be homosexual until the late 60s. And it was, you know, it was punishable either by imprisonment or by chemical castration. So it was a very serious offence. So what we did was we took this working class family in the east end of London, early 50s or late 50s now, into going into the 60s, and their son comes out as gay. They throw him out of the house. He goes to Soho, which is the basically the, it's the west end of London. It's the capital of London and England's sex industry area where there's, you know, porn uh, cinemas, there's prostitution, there's drugs, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. And we, we dropped our 15-year-old boy in and amongst those people. And we then developed the story. So each chapter became a song on the album. So we we went from the first song, um, which was, you know, the, the parents meeting and then having the child and then him coming out as gay and him making his way through his life all the way to his later years, uh, which kind of culminates in the last song on the album called Better Man, which is a realisation of the whole events of his life. So, you know, as a heart back to the Who's album, Quadrophenia, each song is a chapter in the story. And then then what we, we, we said was, look, even though we make videos and we like making videos, this isn't going to work because you can't do a video of a small segment of this story. So what we did was we wrote... Um, like a novella, a short story fleshing out what we wrote as a musical piece, but into an actual fictitious story. So it's just been published this week and it's, it's now available on, on Amazon as a standalone book, uh, a paperback book and um, a Kindle download. So so it was a different, a different approach. And also, as soon as we found out about a friend who'd, who'd attempted suicide, Colin rang me and we, you know, we were obviously very upset about it. And he went, it's the boy who waved at trains, which is the title of the album and the book mm-hmm. and one of the songs on the album. And I said, why is that? And he said, it just is. It means something to me personally. It relates to our friend. I can't say more than that, but it means something to me. So we've never had a discussion beyond that. It's something that Colin came up with. It sounded right. It sounded, it had a slight ambiguousness to it. So we thought, well, I thought, great, it's a it's a great thing to have, to have a title to keep us focused on before the first note of the, of the album's even been written. So uh, unlike the first album, which was completely finished and we still didn't have a title for it. So, so yeah, so that was, that was the creative process behind this album. Uh, incredibly proud of it. And also, Robert, you know, we spoke earlier on about Spotify. People make playlists all the time on Spotify and they take one song and go, this is Barry's summer hits. We didn't want this album to be segmented and people take one track out of context and stick it in amongst a Doors medley or something like that. Each song relates to the previous one and the song after it. And so we thought when we write this album, we don't want it on Spotify. We want people to listen to it as a body of work, one piece of music from start to finish to, to pick up the sleeve notes and read the story behind 
the songs, the album, sentiment, the true life story. And then if they like that, pick up the book and read the book and go, wow, that song, I didn't realise it, it was so much more than just that three and a half minutes of lyric. There's, you know, there's X amount of words, maybe 2000 words that relate in a literary form to that particular song. So, yeah, it, it, I hate being too kind of, you know, pretentious about it, but it, it for us, it's, it's we're, you know, we're a fun band, but it's a really serious body of work. And there's nothing more serious than prejudice, homophobia. They're, they're, they're really serious issues. And in, in a world where they still exist, we, you know, we call ourselves civilised. We've got a long, long way to go before we can call ourselves civilised. Yeah, um, I mean, you can just look at everything that's going on now. Um, I mean, it wasn't until recently here in America that gay people could even get married, and I never understood that. I mean, as long as they're two consenting adults and they love each other, I don't see how that's a bad thing. I mean, you got two people that love each other. Right. How can you think it's, love is a terrible thing? Right. I just don't get it. I think, um, see, see, that's you, that, that's April, and that's myself, and that's Colin, so we all understand that. But for the people that don't understand it, it seems like the most complex equation to solve. You, you either get it or you don't. And I think there's, yeah. you know, that's in, in all kinds of, of prejudice, whether it be racism, you, you either understand, you know, the, the short-sightedness of anything or you don't. And, and you know, and I think it's, it, I don't think, uh, I think we're miles away from uh, from being uh, an evolved, civilised race because we have a word specifically for alienating a group of people just because the majority likes to do that. We, we invented a word called prejudice to satisfy that terrible, a terrible part of human nature, which is to victimise people because they don't conform to how we think they should be. Yeah. It's terrible. It is. That's a good point, though. You either get it or you don't. That's so, so very in, well in, put. In making the album, were were y'all ever afraid that maybe you would alienate a a section of of fans who, let's say, didn't believe in homosexuality? That's brilliant. Well, brilliant question. So the the first album. I don't know if you'd be familiar with the mod culture. It's a very UK based thing, Italian fashion in the sixties. Uh, you know, there was the mods and the rockers in England. And so mods would ride these Vespers and Lambretta scooters. They'd wear Italian, really sharp cut suits. Uh, and they were completely different to rockers. You know, and so that so uh, screens picked up from our first album quite a big mod following. Mod radio stations were playing us. Uh, there was always comparisons to you know 60s bands like the who and um, small faces which are you know big mod acts massive mod acts at the time my generation the kids are all right Ichiku Park, big mod anthems and so we picked up that following and i said to colin at the time do you know what i don't know of one act within the mod community that represents anything to do with the lgbt community I don't recall one song that's come out in support of that. I don't know any band, for that matter, that's, that's you know, a gay band in that community. I said, so what's really interesting is that we may be challenging the audience that really like our first album with this second album without pulling any punches and saying, right, this album 
is standing shoulder to shoulder with the LGBT community. We don't apologise for it. We, we're we proud of what we've done. And I said to Connor, because we don't know whether or not the, the mod community kind of is sympathetic to it or whether or not it's an individual thing or however, we are running the risk of alienating our following. And then we came to the conclusion, well, one door closes, another one opens. And if we lose a following that didn't like it, but gain an, a, a new following as a consequence that went, do you know what? That's a really cool subject. They're, they're saying something that um, maybe a lot of bands would think, well, this isn't commercially viable, so we won't do that. Yeah, we really didn't care. We just, we just didn't care. If, if people liked it, great. If they took offence to it, fine. They're going to have to work that one out for themselves. But we don't apologise for making a statement about something that, you know, we believe strongly about. So... Robert, if if we alienated uh, an audience, it's unfortunate, but we're far from apologetic about it. Right, and it sounds like you wouldn't want that audience anyway. Right. right. Who wants that? Right. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's a personal thing to me because I have good friends that are that are gay, and you know, mm. I just don't understand. I mean, two of my best friends in the world have been together they've their relationship has lasted longer than right most of that's, my marriages right and that's the testament right you know and they're the greatest <laughs> yeah they're the greatest guys in the world right. and how could you be against them just loving each other i, I it blows my mind that there are, are, are people out there that that think that and i or, or why it's anybody's business, somebody's sexual preference. That is what blows my mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's, if it's a, in most instances, it's a, a religious hang up yeah. or, I mean, I don't understand where that comes from. I just, I maybe just, it's that. Yeah. Maybe it's that. You know, from our friend, from our friend's perspective, his parents or his, his father in particular is not religious. He's, his angle was this: no son of mine can be gay. He took. It wasn't about his son. It had nothing to do with his son. It had to do with him. him. That, that perhaps from his loins he would produce a gay son. And his interpretation of that is that that shows a sign of weakness. Right. right. He's not as he saw that he's he, a, as right. a, a blemish on him uh, somehow. Think question his masculinity so so not only is it homophobic how self-centered and selfish is that so it's got nothing to do with you really you know listen uh, i have a son and if if he was to to be be gay i i'd celebrate it you know i'd go great i'm proud of you regardless of what you are it makes no difference to me at all in fact if anything i'm even prouder of you because you're brave, you you know you're you have something about you that is different, and that's what the world's about. The world's about being different, not for the sake of it. I don't mean it for the sake of it. I mean if you are mm-hmm. different, be proud of being different, and don't be scared of conforming. Conforming's for sheep, you know. And if you are if you are different, then as parents, we have to support our children. However, whatever, and um, for a father to be so self-centered that that he would deem, um, he would deem it more important how he feels than how his son feels. I mean, forget it. You know, get over yourself. 
Right. Yeah, uh, my children, if they told me, they would be so underwhelmed because I'd be like, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, I just, it wouldn't be a big deal to me. I'd just be like, okay, yeah. that's fine. Well, yeah, are really. you angry? No. Do you still love really. me? Yeah. It, isn't it? I mean, it's that in a nutshell. You've kind of, that's it, exactly what it is. Yeah. And, and then I would even go so far as to say that they're not even different. They just absolutely not. They're just them. But we have this thing as I say we as a society it's that we just want to focus and hone in on differences of everybody when we have way more similarities than we do differences and that's where that's what needs to be the starting point. Yeah. Isn't it easy isn't it yeah, it's the school playground mentality. Yes. Isn't it easy to pick on the weak one? Because mm-hmm. it becomes a source of entertainment, it becomes a source of distraction from your own inadequacies let's find someone who's more inadequate that i can that i can get a group of people to agree he's more inadequate than me and while they're picking on him they won't pick on me right deflection Mm. that's right yeah her mentality that's right so uh, your friend is he is he doing okay now is is he better but you know, it, uh, it's only, I mean, it's, it's early days. He, uh, he, this is it's two and a half years maximum now. It's not even that, it's two. He's doing okay, Robert. He's not doing great, you know, because, well, put it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an amazing relationship with my dad. He was, he was my best friend, uh, and he was taken away from me far too early. Uh, and, I, and to this day, I, I, you know, I miss him every day. It's, it's been a long time, but I miss him every day. But you've, you any child wants their parents approval if they respect their parents right they just a son wants his dad's approval he wants his dad to go you know i'm so proud of you son we all want that we all want mm-hmm. acceptance approval and so the biggest thing for him is i think knowing that deep down his dad has said those things has said those things that no son of mine would be gay and mm-hmm. they can forgive those things, but they're not going to disappear. You can't unsay something. And so he's, I think his biggest worry is whether or not my dad has got over that or whether or not he still feels that. When he looks at me and, you know, and says goodnight uh, or whatever, what's going on behind those eyes? What's right. going on in his mind, his soul, in his heart? Does he really love me or is it conditional? And I think... I think my friend struggles with that. I think that that might still be on his dad's radar is something that he's he's going to have to find happiness beyond his reassurance from his dad. That's how he's going to have to move on. And he's not there yet. But maybe if he finds a relationship with someone that, that kind of says, you know, you know, we have a, some, a common and that will give him the security to go, you know what? I really don't care what my dad thinks because essentially he's part of a, a generation that, you know, at some point, you know, sadly they'll die, but we're the future and let's let's embrace what we believe and hopefully that message is becoming a broader, more accepted message. And there's people those people that have the prejudice will, you know, at some point die and the the world will be a sadder place of the circumstances but not completely prejudice needs to go with those people we need you know we need a society of of everybody yes absolutely well you know with with friends like like you um i think he'll be okay i think he'll be 
get through this the other side very very well. You know, because, so, because there I, are people he knows that there are people that do love him and accept him. Yeah. Totally. So that helps. Totally right. His mum's yeah, his mum's a good woman. Uh and then there's a comp there's the compromise for her that she's you know, she can't fall out with her husband, mm-hmm. she loves her yeah. son. It becomes a really difficult equation, you know. Does she leave her husband who she loves? It, you know, it's a it's a soap opera, right? It's kind of yeah. it's a real life soap opera. Tragedy it is. Hey, yeah. hey but it was a great for an album, and um, uh, please God, he's going to be okay. Um, and he knows he inspired the album. He loves the album, and I think he's kind of quite flattered, although he shouldn't be. But you know, we've told him, like you know, you know, without his suffering, we wouldn't have made this body of work. So, it, even though it, it, we would rather have not made that body of work, um, it happened. There's nothing anybody could do with it. But he's he was the inspiration that gave us the energy to make that record. So we've got a special friendship that will that will always we'll be indebted to him for forever as a consequence. Absolutely, love that. Yeah. So if if you had to pick one song on this album that someone just absolutely had to listen to. What song would that be? Oh, <laughs> if I if you only had one chance to, to lure someone in, one bite of the apple. Right. What song do you would you think would resonate the most with 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 your fans? Okay. Well. The title track from the album, I think it's track five on the album or six, it's called The Boy Who Waved at Trains. It's some radio station described it the other day as it sounds like Pete Townsend and Elton John rewrote Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. So, so which is that's a compliment oh. and a half. I've never had such mm. an amazing compliment, but that was it. So yeah. that's the song. That's kind of where the band is going. It, it's it, it's balls out guitars, nice and loud, in your face, and uh, and that's that. However, However, <laughs> the album has this story to it, mm-hmm. yeah. and we can't detract from that. And so the last song on the album is called A Better Man, and it's the only slow song on the album. All the rest of the album is fast songs, which is quite weird because, you know, it's just quite weird. Most bands kind of try and throw a few ballads on there. But the last song of the album is a slow song. It's called A Better Man, and it's – Our character from the story, the boy who's gone through this life, he's now a 60-year-old man looking back on his life. And as a ballad, he's understanding how he arrived at where he was. I can't can't give too much away because it it kind of tells the whole story Mm -hmm. of the album. I don't want to do that. But so from, from a humanitarian perspective... I would be a liar if I spent all this time talking to you about the sentiment behind the album and then going, but listen to track two, because that's the one that you're going to be whistling all the way for the rest of the day. Well, what I want to do is I want to play one of the songs on the show. So I I can't play the whole album because that's a whole other show in itself. But I want to get people, I want to give them a taste of it. I want them to hear it. Because there's nothing okay. like nothing like hearing it yourself. What about the suggestion? The boy who waved at trains is the track. I would say to people, this is what we're really about as a band. This is kind of what we're going to do live. This is this mm-hmm. is what we sound like. 
that was the one I played. The Better Man is just the reflection of the sincerity of the story. But yeah, the, the Boy Who Waved at Trains tells you everything you need to know okay. about the screens going forward. All right, well, let's, let's hear that right now.
Yes, um, I love that one. It was wonderful. Uh, you guys, oh, thank- you guys are amazing. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate it. Rob, I'm, uh, April, I feel so rude. I have to wrap in five minutes. Is, yeah. is that okay? That, absolutely. That is absolutely yeah. not a problem. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one closing question then. It's going to be the best question I got. <laughs> so if it's not that great, don't, don't hold it against me. <laughs> if you could pick any artist, living or dead, to perform with, who would you pick? Chuck Berry. Oh, Chuck yeah. Berry. That's a good, that's a good heart. Yeah. Nice my heart. Just Do you know, a really short answer, because that's where my musical journey started, with Johnny Be Good, deep down in Louisiana, close <laughs> to New Orleans. It's mm. the first lyric I ever sang with my guitar. There's a video footage somewhere. I've, I'm missing my front teeth. Obviously, being five years old, you don't have teeth. And, uh, and I'm, I'm it. I'm there. I'm with Chuck. I'm Uh-oh. right on it. I'm at the Grand Opry, and I'm I'm balls out playing this guitar, really giving it some. And every every guitarist that I've ever respected uh, and admired always kind of sources Chuck Berry as their inspiration. So I'm, I'm not a great guitarist, but. Uh, he inspired me, and he inspired me to write songs. Uh, and so, yeah, any artist, it, it, there could be no other. You know, as much as I love Bowie, as much as yeah. I love Prince, all these other great, you know, performers, it would have to be Chuck Berry. He's inspired too many people. Oh yeah, and that's a great. Like we made it 180, right. came all the way around. So before we let you go, is there anything that you need to get out to the public? Any websites? Um, anything that you want to promote? Yeah, well, if you know, if, if people like the track that they just heard, then um, they can hear more stuff. We've got our own website, which is thescreens.org, or we have a Bandcamp page where you can hear all the album, and that's thescreens1.bandcamp.com. We're on Instagram, which is at the double underscore screens. We're on Facebook, which is at facebook.com forward slash the screens too um and that's it those are all our socials we have twitter but i can never remember it and colin deals with that one so <laughs> I, that one, i have no idea but yeah so that you know we're always welcoming you know people that if they like the band reach out talk to us you know the, the great thing now about bands and fans is that we can talk to each other there's not a, a mm-hmm. wall which is the record company keeping us apart you know we can talk on social media and, and it's great you know to get people's takes on tracks that they've heard on finding out you know what we're up to uh, it's really important you know we when we made the album we did a studio diary so once every sort of two weeks um fans would be able to, to tune into just a video of, of, of me and Colin in the studio working through and stuff oh, wow. and talk to them about what we're doing. Yeah, it's really, you know, I, I, I really think now we're in such a great space. And you said this earlier, Robert, about how social media and digital platforms allow so much more interaction. And so for us, yeah, those are the, the screens.org is one, face, facebook.com forward slash screens two. Uh, two. And Instagram uh, at the double underscore screens. We're always there 24-7. My phone never leaves my hand. I'm always there to talk to people. Outstanding. Well, yes. we're going to also, we'll have all those links in the uh, in the uh, show description so you can find them easily and uh, get to them. And I want to thank you again, Anil, for coming on, sharing your time with us, and telling us about your journey and sharing your story. It's really wonderful. And uh, thank you again, sir. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, April. Thank you, Robert. It's, it's been so much fun, and you're lovely people. And, and when 
I get down to New Orleans with my wife, I'm going to head 90 miles north <laughs> and head up towards you. I Absol- love it. Absolutely. Just let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll pick you up from New Orleans. You don't even have to drive. <laughs> it means I can drink on the plane. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you again, sir. And uh, you've been wonderful. Cheers. You too. Thank you so much. Good night, morons. All right. That's us for another PM. Oh, fuck your mother. You've been listening to the Louisiana Saturday Night Podcast. Join us next time. But in the meantime, hit us up on Twitter at LSN Podcast. And find us on Facebook at Louisiana Saturday Night Podcast. Every night until further notice. Go. Okay, bye now. Goodbye.